Hi, hi, hi. Happy Thursday, everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of Here to Queer. This is so much fun for me, and I'm really thankful to all of you who have been uh, listening along, sharing what's been meaningful for you, and also for sending various questions. I love hearing what you're thinking about, and it always reminds me that we're just not alone. None of us are alone. Um, we're all generally asking uh, many similar questions, and um, we're just really resilient. I'm so proud of us. I love us so much, and just want to say how much I appreciate um, each of you and what you bring to uh, my life and these conversations. So thank you. I Every once in a while, I like to do a little time reflecting on various questions you bring and things you're thinking about uh, because so many of you are asking similar things. And so I hear from, I hear from people all over the world on a regular daily basis, uh, sharing their stories, asking for tools or insights, um, and really just wanting to connect. And so I feel, I felt like this might be a good way to sort of respond because I can just sort of group them into themes and share some reflections. And also I would love for you all when I do these to hop on live, um, you can hop on live and like, there's a little button at the bottom right hand corner and it's like a wave or something. And I can, uh, take your questions, comments, reflections live, uh, which sounds really exciting. So if you want to hop on, uh, just like hit the wave button and I'll figure out how to open the mic to you. Uh, That'll be fun. For now, I will start with uh, various things that you all have sent in specifically on Instagram. And just so you know, I, d I won't ever uh, share things that you send sort of privately without ha like first having said, hey, I'm going to be reflecting on things if you want to send them in. So <laughs> if you've DM me your life story, don't worry. I'm not going to be sharing that here. <laughs> um, but, but the to those of you who responded sort of my prompts, uh, that will be what I'm generally responding to. And again, uh, feel free to hop on and uh, sort of butt into the conversation live because that sounds really fun and exciting. Uh, the first the first one that I'm going to answer is one that I get a lot. And I think it's just because of probably the work and writing I've done, uh, which is how to sort of build or rebuild your faith after coming out. I get a lot of conversations uh, that are about that, but then also like very sort of anxiety ridden, uh, versions of that question that are like, I'm so filled with shame. I feel like there's no way for me. How do I, how do I cope? How can I hold on to my faith? How can I rebuild sort of like, almost like I'm drowning type, uh, cries for help. And so the first thing I want to say is that you're a lot, you have a lot more resources than you think. Um, and so like I, I would, if that's, if that's you and you're really feeling that sense of drowning, I would say first, like, thank you for just reaching out to somebody. And I think it's so important to reach out to if there's any like wise people in your life that are going to respond to you with kindness and not judgment. Um, gosh, it's just life changing to reach out to people in your actual community who know you and can see you and can support you in this process. Um, the next thing I want to say is that I think it's really important to know that 
you know, religion and spirituality are frameworks and tools that can be used in a number of different ways. They're not uh, objectively in themselves good or flawless. And I know that sounds, that might sound kind of scary to some of you because you were told that this was the absolute truth about the world and this was the right way to live and this was, the, you know, this other way was the wrong way. But if you look at something like the KKK and movements around white supremacy, so many of those are, are, are um, like being a Christian, quote unquote, is a prerequisite for being a part of those organizations. And so that's objectively bad. And so there's, there's no, uh, I guess I still have to say these are, these are frameworks and tools that can be used to harm, they can be used to control people, or they can be used to heal us and to free us. Um, once we kind of like start to realize that, I think it gives us, it empowers us to be able to really ask important questions about the ones that are forming us right now and to say, what is the fruit of this teaching and what is the fruit of this community? Is this ultimately causing harm or is it leading to healing? And is this, is this a part of our um, collective uh, journey toward uh, liberation and uh, is this alleviating suffering in the world? And so I would say, first, you can just look at your own life. And it sounds like many of the questions I get from you all, the, the, the communities and systems you're in are causing a lot of shame and causing a lot of anxiety and fear. And so um, it might be worth asking whether or not it would be worth it to step away from those communities uh, so that you can find some that are going to be more nourishing and uplifting. And um, I, I also would say that when it's shame and fear and anxiety that your communities have created, uh, some sort of mental health work is going to be incredibly useful and healing. And so for me, that's been various forms of therapy over the years, but then also like just reading books that are about healing from trauma or about, um, understanding better the family systems in which we were formed so that we can start making different, more conscious choices in our lives to grow and to uh, sort of lay down new pathways uh, within ourselves that, again, lead to, to re relationships that allow us to heal and flourish. So um, I guess I say that to step back and, and take a little bit of a, I think there can be so much spiritual abuse and it can be these, our religious system can be so insular that we sometimes need to step out of them and look at more of like a, a sort of mental health perspective or sociological perspective to, to answer these questions. Because sometimes like memorizing more Bible verses within a system that's hurting you is, is just going to only exacerbate uh, your fear and anxiety. And, and sometimes it takes reevaluating uh, the bigger picture and maybe finding another uh, kind of community. I also want to say that it's going to look different for everyone. So many of us have come out of similar kinds of sort of rigid uh, religious communities. And then we, we share some sense of solidarity uh, in that process of coming out of them and uh, beginning a, pro a, a journey of sort of healing but then people tend to go in a lot of different directions. Like the more that they uh, get to know themselves and what's going to lead to their flourishing, some go in the direction of like a more mainline Protestant church like uh, the Episcopal Church or uh, the ELCA. Uh, some go into more evangelical 
churches that are like affirming, like the city church in San Francisco, which I love, or Denver Community Church. Um, and some go into broader spiritual practices that aren't necessarily tied to a particular church, but uh, are places where they can can grow and find healing. So um, it's so it, it I don't want to just like give an answer to that question because I think um, it's it's more important that you really be clear about your own needs and uh, that you sort of take that initiative to to figure out what's going to be a place where you can thrive and, and move in that direction. Another question uh, that quite a few people sent in some sort of way was like how to, how to cultivate hope. Uh, what does it look like to – how do we cultivate hope uh, when there's been so much loss? And, you know, we're coming out – collectively of a very, very hard few years. And many of us are coming out of a very hard de few decades. Um, and so there can feel like, like loss upon loss upon loss in many ways. And it's um, hope is what keeps us alive. Hope is what gets us, keeps us going. And so um, I've had, this is such a, I love this question because I think I was so inclined in my earlier years to bright siding <laughs> and being like, okay, well, everything is falling, or, you know, everything's falling apart around me, but I have legs and I'm just so thankful I have legs and, you know, and just like completely ignoring all that was so devastating and painful. And, um, that doesn't help anybody because that keeps us, if we can't first acknowledge reality and acknowledge what is it makes it really difficult for us to be able to imagine uh, how things could be, which is essentially what hope is. Uh, so I'm going to first read a poem that I just love so much. And it's a sad poem, but it's also a very true poem. And I think it illustrates sort of this point and then get into a few other thoughts about hope. Uh, the poem, which many of you have probably heard, is called Good Bones by Maggie Smith. And here's what it says. Life is short, though I keep this for my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this for my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every love child, a child broken bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. And I love that poem, and I bring that up in this conversation about cultivating hope because I, I love this image of a realtor <laughs> trying to sell you a home and chirping on about a real shithole of a home and chirping on about good bones. And I love that because first what she's saying throughout this whole poem is she's acknowledging the way things are. She's looking at life, whether it's, uh, the broader world or her own life, and she's telling the truth both to herself and other people. 
um, maybe not our kids, but to us about all that's sad and all that's broken and all that's, um, yeah, just the loss and the grief. And I think that's a really important place to start to cultivate hope because it's not until we've looked at something squarely and told the truth about it. It's not until then that we can begin to imagine what could be right. It's not until then that we can look at the good bones and say, this place could be beautiful. And, and then you can begin to go, okay, well, if we knock down this wall and we, we pull up this, this tile and we deal with all this mildew over here. It's, it's, it's once we start doing that and being honest about it that we can come in and go, gosh, imagine the home we could create here. Like imagine a kitchen that's wide open to the living room and we can, uh, we can have these parties. We can, we can let all these people come and bring, you know, the mac and cheese and the potato salad and, um, and we can, we can tell stories to each other. We can read poems. We can sing songs. We can create places of belonging and and that's what cultivating hope is. It's it's imagining uh, what's possible in a space uh, where currently, uh, when you're when you're telling the truth about how it is, it doesn't it doesn't seem that way. And I think it's important in that process of imagining how it can be to also be clear about what you can do to bring that to fruition, because so much of so much of the uh, sort of sense of loss and even depression, despair that we can feel is when we might be able to imagine how something could be, but all of the power to make that possible in our minds is held by somebody else. And to some degree that, that can be true. Like, um, if we have serious health issues or serious financial issues, like there, there, it often does take, um, like other outside forces to, to help us get to this life we're imagining. And at the same time, our day-to-day realities and sort of these ways that we're cultivating hope to create something better than how it currently is in our lives or in the world, um, we do have a lot of power. We do have a lot of uh, capacity to to make life a little bit more beautiful uh, for ourselves and for the people immediately around us. And so as we're imagining how it could be, I think it's important to think about tiny steps we can begin to take to bring that to fruition and make that possible. And that's how I cultivate hope. I try to do it on a smaller scale because I think that honestly, I have lived long enough to know that most of the change that's possible for us is on a smaller scale. I think many of us grew up with these like grandiose uh, envisions of what it meant to save the world. And uh, they were really problematic and untrue. And, I think that actually it's it's much more noble to alleviate suffering in our immediate communities. And it's much harder because when we're saving the world, it's often just about our own egos. And um, when we're when we're alleviating suffering in our immediate communities, it's usually just like giving our actual time and and our resources and listening and showing up. And it's it's hard and it doesn't inflate our egos, and it's it's the beautiful, beautiful work of ultimately uh, building the sort of beautiful homes and lives that we're talking about. Um, so those are a few thoughts on cultivating hope, and I would love to hear from you all how you cultivate hope, because that feels like a very important practice um, in the lives of people like us. The next question I got 
uh, which is, I, I get similar ones like this is, um, when did your family come to accept you as gay? And I laugh a little bit because much of my family still does not accept me as gay. Um, I've talked about this quite a bit. I'm, I'm fairly estranged from some very close members of my family, which is I, part of the reason I talk about it is because I think since we have like, uh, you know, rainbow candy wrappers in June and, uh, some queer characters on like cartoon shows, which is awesome. By the way, I love all of that. I think it's really meaningful change. Um, but there's a sense in which people can think like, Oh, we're, we're done or this is in the past. And now we might be grieving what was and the trauma that was, but, uh, now we're just sort of like living in a rainbow fairyland and, and that's not true. And so I think it's important to, also be in reality that, um, at least for me, some of these family members might never accept me and they might never approve of my lifestyle, quote unquote. And I might always be a teachable moment for their kids. And this is part of getting back to the, the good bones poem and cultivating a sense of hope. Um, it's not helpful for me to tell myself a story or for many of you to tell yourselves a story that eventually these people will come around. What's more helpful is to say, this is the truth about where we are right now. And what do I want? What, what is going to lead? Uh, what is living a life of integrity look like for me? And that might mean continuing to reach out to them. It might mean creating more boundaries. It might mean, you know, sort of pulling back altogether and creating a chosen family. There's a lot of different right ways to go about it. But we first have to tell the truth about how things are and not just tell ourselves a story that they eventually will because uh, that just sets up for constant disappointment when they don't. The other thing I want to say about when my family came to accept me as gay is that there were a couple sort of unlikely, like unusual uh, suspects that very, very early on did. And I didn't have the ears to see or <laughs> the ears to hear and eyes to see. And I say that because I think sometimes we can tell ourselves a story that's very like, um, all or nothing and be like, nobody accepts me because like several members of our family of origin might not. Uh, but I remember this, I was thinking about this story recently, uh, when I was like 19 years old ish, or I don't know, sometime in my late teens or early twenties. Um, I went to pick up my grandma, Juju, who I've written about. Um, I went to pick her up in San Antonio and drive her to Dallas so she could hang out with my family for, a holiday. I think it was Christmas. And I had not told her anything about my sexuality at that point. I was still in conversion therapy. So the way I would have described myself was struggling with same sex attractions. And I just didn't want to talk to my grandma about my struggle with same sex attractions. So, um, I hadn't said anything to her, but I know my mom had definitely unloaded on Juju about uh, my sexuality. And so Juju at that point was probably like in her, uh, let's say 80, mid 80s, somewhere in there. And we were driving and we weren't super close at that point. And there was a lot of silence, like awkward silences. Um, and all of a sudden she just midway through the drive said, I, I wanted to tell you something. And I was like, yeah, I was like, what, what's up, Juju? And she was like, there's a man in who sings in the choir at my church, and he's a very colorful man, and he and his partner 
have been together for a very, very long time, and they're just beautiful men, and they love each other very much. And I just wanted to tell you that I, I think that's so beautiful, and I think that God loves everyone, and I just, I, I just want you to know that I just support them and love them so much. And I was like, oh, my God. I, this, I feel like this was not a random story for no, uh, what, what is she trying to say? What do I do? And I was just like, wow, that's great. Juju. Thank you. That sounds like nice people and kind of changed the subject. And looking back, I, I wish that I had really reached out and held on to that because that was a member of my family, even if we weren't super close and she wasn't part of my immediate sort of, you know, uh, whatever nuclear family unit, uh, she was somebody who was trying to signal to me that she saw me and she loved and supported me exactly the way I was. And it, it took courage for her to, to sort of bring that up out of nowhere. And I wish I had, had sort of taken refuge in that and opened up a conversation with her that could have been so healing for me at that point in my life when I was still in conversion therapy and still feeling so much self-hatred and... Uh, shame. And so while some of our families might not accept us right now, and while some might never, I think it's important to look for the ones who are showing signs of of true delight in who you are and to, to lean into those if it's at all possible, uh, because I think those can go a very, very long way and bring about an immeasurable amount of healing. Um, so yeah, take that for what it's worth. The next question I got is really interesting and complicated. Uh, this one is uh, somebody asks, what if your commitments are in opposition somehow, like work and family or yourself and a commitment to a partner or religious community? Is it right to keep your commitments no matter what? And that one hits close to home. Um, as many of you know, I uh, was married and to an amazing person and we separated um, during the pandemic. It was a very, very long process with lots of uh, sad and hard and also lots of love and beautiful. And um, so, you know, but, the, but this question isn't just about a relationship sort of transitioning in that way. It's, it's also about uh, what if your commitment to yourself is at odds with a commitment you made to a religious community. And I think about like priests who have taken a vow um, of celibacy and then fall in love, or um, there's all kinds of ways that our commitments can, can be at odds. And I've been thinking a lot about this over the years. Um, and I think there's, there's a, a common sort of belief in our, in our culture that it's wrong to break your commitments, that it's, it's a moral failure of sorts. And I, first, I don't like those kinds of black and white statements. Um, I don't think they serve us. And I also don't think they serve the person uh, on the other end of that broken promise either, because if we can't, if we make a promise that we can't keep for whatever reason, um, it's usually, it's often usually not a moral failure. It's a greater sense of awareness of who you are and what, what you need and what you're capable of, what you want. And if somebody, if we make a promise 
as a version of ourselves that we, uh, and we eventually change and we realize we, we can't keep it or we don't want to, or it's not healthy for us. Um, the right thing to do is to share that with the people on the other side of that commitment. That's the kindness. It's not kind. I don't think any of us want to be in a situation where somebody white knuckles, white knuckles it, uh, to, to keep a commitment that they no longer, uh, that no longer is leading to their flourishing or uh, is no longer healthy for, for everybody involved. And I think the, the bigger thing I would say around this is, uh, to first of all, as we're making commitments, do a lot more, uh, reflection and work and within ourselves and our communities about what, what kinds of commitments we can keep. And then, to the extent that it's possible, make those. Um, so many of us will promise the world to people and, and we're very naive in doing that. And I think that it's a lot kinder, uh, if we can be honest with ourselves and, and make commitments and promises that are more like, Hey, I, I promise you that I will be honest with you. I promise you that I will tell you the truth about where I am and what I, what I need and what, you know, I, I promise that I will, uh, do my very best to, uh, work things out together with you in these conversations. I'm not just gonna, you know, take on this leader, leadership position in this job and then leave if it gets overwhelming. I promise you that I'll come to you first and, and try to work out with you, uh, how we can do this in a way that we all grow. Um, but I think all that to say, no, I don't think it, it is morally wrong to when you realize you have made a commitment or promise you can't keep to, uh, to acknowledge that both to yourself and the other people. It's not a moral failure and it is pretty gutting for everybody involved. So I think that, uh, probably the real learning for us is to try to do a lot more work on the front end of those commitments to, 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 yeah, make promises that we can, are more capable of holding up to. Um, and then obviously always being honest, communicating well, communicating with kindness and love along the way. And to the extent that it's possible, um, bringing people along with us in this journey, because, um, life is ultimately about growing in loving kindness. Life isn't just about sticking to, um, white knuckling it and, doing living into something that we've been told is the right way to live it's about growing in love and kindness and uh we can do that as we change and as we evolve if if we do that with with kindness and so those are a few reflections on that very difficult question but i would love to hear from you all what you think uh because it's big and it's not something that we can tackle in seven minutes or so <laughs> Um, another question that somebody asked is what projects I'm working on right now. Um, I'll be, be short with this cause I don't think this is relevant for everybody. Um, but just a little personal note on that. Uh, to be honest, I'm still healing in many ways. Um, like I said at the beginning, like I went through several decades of hard and then, um, also the last several years, I think have been really hard for all of us. Um, and honestly writing out love my memoir and, and being involved in a lot of conversations around pray away, uh, the documentary about conversion therapy that I was in, uh, those really took a toll on me. They were very, very emotionally intense. And 
um, there were ways it was really beautiful and there were conversations, uh, that were so moving. And I know that it was, uh, like a, a gift to so many people. And then there were ways that it also, um, really, um, yeah, just took a toll. And, and so I've been, um, I'm, I'm still healing in many ways. Um, I'm not working on any big new projects right now. Um, I am starting to play around with fiction some, which has been a lot of fun and, uh, maybe a way of going about telling meaningful stories that hopefully help people feel less alone and bring healing, uh, in a way that isn't, doesn't leave me quite so exposed. Uh, I don't, I don't know where things will go from here, but that's just kind of an honest answer in terms of, uh, what I'm working on and, uh, what I'm up to. Um, there is, um, another question. Quite a few of you asked me about, uh, joy, uh, just like what are some simple joys? And I think I might end on this one. Um, and again, if any of you want to ask anything live, feel free to wave the little hand. Um, and I can throw you the mic, uh, but for now, some little simple joys. And I also love, uh, there's a book Barbara Brown Taylor wrote who I just completely adore. She's one of my favorite authors and voices. And, um, she's a former Episcopal priest. She's a, uh, religion, uh, like sort of world religion teacher and uh, professor and just has rights with such tenderness and such wisdom and kindness and warmth. Um, and she, the way she phrases it is what's saving your life right now. And I love that because I think that's sort of a daily practice for most of us is, uh, finding, finding routines and practices that save our lives in this day. Uh, because today is all we have as far as we know right now. Um, so for me, uh, that has been, moving my body. That's always one of the ways that I find so much joy. Uh, it's also just a very natural way of, you know, releasing some stress and getting endorphins and, uh, feeling very present and connected to myself and my body in the world. Also moving my body outside because it is spring finally. And not only is it spring, but it is spring at the point when the pandemic is kind of turning into something that feels like, uh, not quite the same. <laughs> I feel like we're moving into something more like the flu, which is obviously still terrible and obviously still hurts people every year. Um, meaning actually kills a lot of people and it's devastating and hard, but it's just nice to be feeling like it's, it's not quite as traumatic to get it. And I'm excited about places being open and trips happening and, uh, being able to connect with more loved ones. Um, so that's a big joy spring and not just spring, but spring in a time of COVID in many ways, both metaphorical and real feels awesome. Um, and the other thing I would say is finding joy in the life that I have, uh, not the one that I wish it were. And that's not like my life is, is really beautiful. It's not to say that, um, oh, I'm not living the life I wish I was. But I think that's just true for all of us. I think that it's so easy to want some things to be different than they are, whether that's uh, we're caring and like we're loving some people and caring for people who are sick and wishing that they weren't, or we ourselves have chronic fatigue or chronic 
pain and wishing it weren't like there's so many ways uh that the lives we have are different than the ones they wish we wish they were and so for me um i think the the biggest question about simple joys in my life is just each day going what is what's bringing me joy what is beautiful in this here actual life and most of you know right now i'm working in a restaurant which is really great and also really hard. Um, that is not what my ideal work is going to be long-term. Uh, I love meaningful, like making meaningful connections. And I've been in ministry a lot of my life and writing, um, and doing work for justice and peace. And I'm still doing much of that. And it also feels like a lot of that's in my free time, uh, while I'm working in restaurants, with so many of my hours and that um, it can be easy to be frustrated about that and to be down about that and to be, you know, really focused on getting out of that situation when really I think what brings me joy is to go like, man, like, look at these beautiful, look at this beautiful day. And I'm so excited that I get to be uh, serving good food and drinks to people outside and that the streets are closed off and that, um, I'm getting to laugh with people and I'm getting to know different kinds of colleagues who have such fascinating stories and, and, and so just taking each, each day in this here life and going, what's beautiful here, um, has really been a big key to joy for me, uh, in this season and in throughout most of my life, honestly. So those are a few uh, reflections on various things that you sent ahead of time. I, I want to reiterate how much I appreciate you all and how much I resonate with the questions you're asking and how good it feels to resonate uh, because it's such a reminder that we're not alone. Uh, there are so many people um, that are also out there uh, doing the hard work of healing and doing the hard work of being honest with themselves and honest with the people around them about uh, ways that they want to grow and need to grow. And there are so many people out there that are looking at uh, a real shithole of a house and saying, this place can be beautiful and, and, and imagining uh, what they could do with those good bones. And so I, I am encouraged by that. That gives me hope. Thank you all for joining. And I look forward to hearing uh, more of your thoughts and reflections uh, in the days and weeks to come and look forward to being here again with you next week. Good night, everyone. <laughs>